You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. The Co-Main Event Podcast is returned for Episode 6. I am Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. I'm freshly returned from the wilds of New York City. I'm back in Montana, and as always, your other co-host for the CME podcast, as I guess we're calling it now, right. is uh, Ben Folks from MMAfighting.com. Ben, how are you? I'm good. I am not returned from anywhere. I've just been here. No, you've done nothing from yeah. what I understand. Pretty much nothing with my life. Uh, I sat this weekend out in a live sense. I had to go to New York to... Uh, to go to a friend's wedding, return to the old stomping grounds of Brooklyn, where my wife and I used to live. Uh, I can report that it was hot as fuck. I can report <laughs> that dragging a woman who is seven months pregnant around in New York while it is 95 degrees and 90% humidity is not very much fun, for, mostly you, for her. Were you concerned about going back there and maybe confronting some of your old enemies from when you used to slaying crack rock? Yeah, you mean before I had to leave town to let the heat die down? Yeah. Really? I, that was a concern of mine. Fortunately, I managed to uh, dodge the haters, Yeah, I guess well, you might say. Well, good. I mean, good on you for that. I, I mean, you came back here. You're now doing the podcast to a different set of haters, more or less. That's true. That's true. So, Far less dangerous, though, yeah. I feel. Yeah. The, uh, the people who hate this podcast could merely kill us with their bare hands. So <laughs> I'm not that. Yeah, there's a lot of people who don't want to see this podcast make it to air. <laughs> a lot of people scared of what's going to be said in this podcast. Wow, I feel like you were just uh, channeling your inner fighter. You got to do something. I didn't go anywhere. I don't have any fun trips to talk about. You went all the way to New York, didn't even go to Rudy's to get some cheese balls. I think you really let us all down. I did drop the ball there. Yeah. I did drop the ball. Anyway, uh, let's move on with uh, listener mail. As always, we've uh, solicited questions from you, our audience, and you have responded uh, with, with a number of, of good questions this week. If you have questions for future episodes, go ahead and email us. You can go to the comaineventpodcast.com and uh, click the handy link at the top of the page that says email the podcast and... That will allow you to email the podcast. You know what I think is going to be great? It's getting to the point now where we don't even really have to solicit uh, listener mail because no, people we, are just sending it in. Yeah, we didn't do that this week. and we got I, all... It's going to be great when uh, you know one or both of us is killed or incarcerated and we're not even doing the podcast anymore. And people are still just and emailing just, The that. questions still keep coming in. I hope that the federal government finds it in their hearts to return those emails. Or at least put them up on the website if they send some pictures of their dogs or cats and they're cute. I mean, I know you, you find it too much of a chore to do that in a timely fashion. Maybe the federal government can do something that Chad Dundas refuses to. Wow, what a, that's a real shot at me. I'm sorry. Maybe the federal government can do yet another thing that Chad <laughs> Dundas refuses to. <laughs> they do, do to. a lot of stuff that I just won't do. Anyway, question number one this week comes from Ray Minehain, or possibly Ray Minehane. I don't know how you would pronounce that. But, Ray uh, M. Ray M. And Ray M. asks, Chael Sonnen, infamous shit talker and outstanding fight promoter, has said that a lot of pride fights were fixed, referencing Vanderlei Silva and Krokop particularly. It does seem strange that they were so dominant in pride and could not carry it over to the UFC. Do you think Chael is right, or is it something like there were too many quote-unquote wars and, and got old, or even something to do with Japan's lax stance on PEDs? First of all, Ray M., what I want to know is, you're believing what Chael Sonnen says now, right? Like, so you also believe, I assume, that he is the rightful middleweight champion, undefeated and undisputed. Uh, you believe that uh, that story he told about the Nogueras trying to feed a carrot to a bus when they got to America. I mean, my point is, Chael Sonnen says a lot of stuff. It's difficult to tell what he believes he and what he does not. He may not be the most... Uh, reliable source that said when i had a chance to spend some time with chael sonin uh for an upcoming sports illustrated article uh he did make several claims that i found to be dubious uh and not you know the kind that were was like you know chael sonin doing his chael sonin thing sitting around his living room watching fox news with chael sonin and vinnie magalhaes uh you know, and he would just kind of say stuff like about how he knows the true identity of D.B. Cooper. And, you know, you can tell he was not doing it because he was trying to trying to do his usual shtick. He was just I mean, some of that stuff, maybe he really does believe. I think the difference between the real Chael and the character Chael is a matter of degrees uh, rather than it is, you know, him completely putting on an act. So maybe he does believe that. However, as for the pride fight stuff, I mean, some of it is. You look at who those guys fought, I don't know if you needed to fix those fights. I mean, remember how they would do the pride tournaments where Vanderlei Silva, you know, they they don't give you the tournament tree all at once. 
they would give you the first round pairings and then you know in Vanderlei we get the easiest matchup and then whoever is the you know the shittiest guy who survives the first round they give that guy to Vanderlei you know when you're doing that do you really need a you know a referee with an earpiece fixing the fights well I think that's true. That's a good point. But we also know that some of those fights were, in fact, fixed. Okay, but we, the, we the don't ones know that we know were fixed, I think it's pretty obvious. Like that yeah, Mark true, Coleman true. Right, That's that one is an obvious fix. The Mark Coleman versus uh, Takata fight is one of the worst, worst also, fights you'll ever yeah. see. Also, if you're going to tell me, like, hey, I want you to go out and lose this fight, you know, I want you to throw this fight, you know how I'm not going to throw it? Knockout. That's just not the way I'm going to choose right. to do it. Right. I'm going to go out there, like, throw me in an ankle lock, and I'll sell it, you know? Like, I'm not going to go out there and say, like, let the guy soccer kick me in the face and then stomp on my head, uh, and that'll be the work. No way. I'm going to go ahead and say the, the, the pride, you know, the superstars of pride, the way that we saw them kind of come over and underwhelm in the UFC is probably a... a an all of the above type situation and probably the least most influence was because of fixed fights. I, I think if there were fixed fights in pride, there probably certainly wasn't like the lion's share of the fights over there or anything like that. I'm going to say like, probably it was a little bit that, that maybe some guys were, were taking PEDs when they were in Japan and then stopped and they came to America. And also I think, you know, not very many of these guys came to America while still in their prime. I think yeah. you look at like Crow uh, yeah, I mean, and Vanderlei Silva, those were guys who by the time they got over here or back over here in Vanderlei's case, that we'd probably seen the best for them. And, 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 you know, they came over here as, as something less than advertised. And that was kind of an era shift in MMA too. When, you know, that was the ending of Pride was kind of the point when guys stopped being specialists in one thing and everybody was kind of good at or at least passable at everything. I, I do think you're right, though, that it was a bunch of little stuff. You know, maybe the PED stuff, that played a part. They come over and they're fighting in a cage instead of a ring. That plays a part. You know, some of them are just old or have taken some beatings. You know, I don't know. And you look at uh, Rampage. I mean, he was better in the UFC than he was in Pride. So... I don't know. I I think there's a whole lot of reasons. A that... confluence of events, you might yes. say. <laughs> yes. Uh, question two comes this week from Jason Stegall or Stegall. Uh, and he, he asks, who's the best MMA personality to interview? Who is the worst? Ooh. And who kind of frightens you when you interview them? That's a good question. Uh, I'm going to say the best, Dan Hardy. Okay. Who do you say is the best? I was going to say uh, Hardy's very good. I was going to say Lieben, actually. Because the thing that's awesome about Lieben is that he's just so goddamn honest about most everything. And it's like he can't stop himself, you know. And he's a guy who's not afraid in most instances to confront his mistakes of the past. Like, you know, if you ask Chris Lieben about, uh, about, you know, his his struggles with with substances or his decision to take – some performance enhancers before the Bisping fight, he's probably going to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, he will tell you. I think a lot of guys would shy away from that. So A, a lot of other guys will even say beforehand, like, hey, I'm not going to do this interview unless you agree not to talk about this other stuff. Right. This is a totally bullshit move, uh, which you should not give into. But a lot of guys will do that kind of stuff. Or, you know, if you bring it up, we'll say, even if it was like six months ago, they always pulled a sweet thing where they go, oh, that was in the past, man. I'm, like, I'm not here to talk about the past. Right. The Mar- <laughs> Mark McGuire style. Yeah. And, you know, Lieben's an open book. And he's also, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for being as smart as he is. I feel like he is a, a smarter than your average fighter and more introspective kind of than we give him credit for. So I think it's he's an interesting guy to talk to because he'll be honest and usually he has, you know, as crazy as he is and like funny, he's he has just some genuine insight, I think, about his own character that you don't get from a lot of guys. Well, that's what I, I think is awesome about Dan Hardy is that he has an honesty, a self-awareness, and uh, he's articulate enough that he can tell you about it. And, you know, when you bring something up to him, he, he's... He's clearly thought about it himself. It's not just that... Because a lot of fighters, I think, have to mentally trick themselves, uh, have to turn off like some reasonable aspect of their brain in order to keep doing what they do. Dan Hardy, a really reasonable guy, has thought this shit through. So that makes him a lot of fun to talk to. And uh, I will jump to the to the last part of the question of who frightens you the most when you, when you interview them. Um, I would say no one really, but uh, kind of funny. When I interviewed Dan Hardy and... Uh, Chris Lytle back to back right before they fought uh, at the UFC. I think UFC on FX or something like that. Yeah. uh, In Milwaukee. Uh, 
you interview Dan Hardy, and, and like I said, I think on an earlier week, you come away with this feeling like, oh, man, what's this guy even doing being a professional fighter? He's far too sensible, far too, uh, you know, in touch, far too smart, far too funny. And then I interviewed Chris Lytle, and Chris Lytle, also an awesome dude. I, can't, I don't want to take anything away from Lytle, and super nice and super, uh, you know, uh, super gracious. But just while I was looking into his eyes while he was, while he was talking to me, I could see somewhere deep, like in the back of his soul, I had this realization like, oh, holy shit, this guy would totally kill me if that's what it came to. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the same way I feel about uh, Donald Cerrone. Again, an awesome dude. Yeah, really, and also awesome interview. Yeah, and, and a really nice guy, fun to talk to. But you definitely get the sense, both from watching him fight and from talking to him, if I displeased this man for, for whatever reason, he would hurt me very, very badly, and he would enjoy the hell out of it. And I, when I say that about Lytle, I don't mean in an interview setting. I mean, like, if you came up in Chris Lytle's house, like, trying to creep up on a break-in, <laughs> he, would, he would kill you and, not, and have no qualms about it. As far as who is just a terrible interview, Brock Lesnar. Awful. Yeah. He's yeah. terrible. Yeah. There's, there are a lot of guys, even though MMA is pretty lucky in the sense that there are a lot of like colorful individuals and the sport has not quite grown to the, to the point where everything is like PC and blase and everything is a soundbite. There are a lot of guys that play it pretty close to the vest and pe- keep it pretty uh, public relations oriented, I well, guess you, you would say. Cain Velasquez is a guy I would mention. Yeah. Super nice see, guy. The difference with Cain Velasquez is like, I feel like that's kind of the best he can do. Like, he doesn't really have a lot to say. He seems like a really quiet guy who just doesn't really like talking that much and doesn't like talking about himself that much. True. With true. Lesnar, you know he can do better. Uh, uh, yeah, Lesnar's just half-assing. Yeah, he, is, he just doesn't even bother to hide the fact that he does not want to be doing this interview, and so he's going to kind of be a dick about it. Uh, and because, you know, he's like this superstar, he, uh, an interview with him is also difficult to get. So it's one of those where they tell you, like, hey, do you have time for Brock Lesnar sometime on Thursday between noon and 8 p.m.? And you're like, yeah. And then, the, you know, two hours later, they call you back and say, can we make it 9 p.m.? And you're like, yeah. And then they call you back and be like, okay, he's calling you right now. You know, like it's one of those kind of things where you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to get it. And then when you get it, he's going to be a dick to you. So it's just not a lot of fun. Question number three comes from Brady Carlson. I'm not sure if we've answered uh, Brady's question, one of Brady's questions in the past. This might be our first repeat. I'm not sure. Uh, He asks, will Bellator's move to Spike have a big impact on MMA? Bellator talks about their partnership with Spike as their proverbial ace in the hole, and I've heard many say that they will, quote-unquote, blow up. Is this true? Does being on Spike rival being on Fox FX Fuel TV? Will Bellator ever be more than second fiddle to the UFC? Well, I can answer the last question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the last question is a resounding no. But, you know, what? Uh, as far as their Spike partnership, it, it remains to be seen. Uh, I'm a little bit skeptical that it's going to have a huge impact. I think that the brand recognition of the UFC is still the biggest uh, money-making factor in the sport. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I think a lot of people watched the UFC on Spike because they kind of knew what it was and kind of heard of it, found it on Spike and watched it. I'm not sure how many people are going to stumble upon Bellator unbeknownst, you know, to themselves and be like, oh, you know, what the hell is this? And not just think it's some kind of off-brand UFC, which has always been the problem with those other promotions. Yeah, that is going to be the problem. But I think that the, I mean, one thing Spike has going for it, and it has proved this somewhat shockingly to me, is that they do, they have like kind of instilled themselves in a lot of people's minds as being a destination for MMA. When they show taped UFC fights opposite live UFC fights, they still will get like a million people, which is astounding. True. And let me... uh... Let me be clear. I think it will have a. It w- I mean, it'll be better for Bellator for them to be on Spike yeah. than not be on Spike. Yeah, it's a huge. And help it'll to be Bellator. better for Bellator to be on Spike than, than be MTV Two. Yeah, for sure. I'm just not sure. I mean, I'm not sure what impact you really expected to have. I think they'll, you know, they'll probably do okay ratings wise, but it's not gonna like vault them. They're not suddenly gonna be competing for the hottest free agents with the but UFC. Then that's. I think Bellator has been really smart in that they have not done the the thing that like the IFL and Bodog and Affliction and all these other promotions tried to do, which was to right away put yourself in a position to compete with the UFC and try and go huge all of a sudden. Sure. Yeah. No. They, they've kept it reasonable, uh, and you know now this helps them get a little bit bigger, but. Yeah, they, they don't need to, to try and be this enormous juggernaut in the industry. And so I, I think they're doing okay with that. You know, the people that it might help the most are the fighters, are the guys yeah. like Michael Chandler and Eddie Alvarez who will be able to get good exposure out of Bellator and then eventually come to the UFC and, and sign a bigger deal because they will be bigger stars. I'm not sure about Bellator's budding partnership with Impact Wrestling. Uh, it was That's a, weird. It was an odd marriage, I think, when they signed King Mo to do both at the same time. I think that they need to be really wary of that 
and, and how they, they build that in the future. I think that, you know, while, while impact probably does decent numbers among wrestling people, I don't necessarily know that, that being in, in the same pocket as a professional wrestling organization is really what you want to do at this stage as a, as a mixed martial arts company. Yeah. That's a tricky line to blur. I'm, I'm going to be curious to see how it works with, with King Mo. I mean, he's a good guy. You, you hope to see him be successful, but, uh, I just hope uh, he's not getting himself into a mess there. All right. Well, that is listener mail for this installment of the co-main event podcast. If you have a question for next week, email us at co-main event podcast at gmail.com or hit up the web, the website co-main event podcast.com and click the email, the podcast link at the top of the page. Uh, Before we segue into round number one, our weekly disclaimer Ben is an employee of MMAfighting.com, and I'm an employee of ESPN.com, but the opinions that we express here are ours alone. Don't please think that they reflect in any way upon our employers. Or our parents. Or our parents. Yeah, they want us to note that. Um, There's going to be some adult themes on this podcast, as you've probably figured out already. Uh, There will be some swearing. Um, There's probably going to be some nudity. (laughs) See? See what what I tell you? See. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and segue into round number one right now because we've got a lot to talk about this week. Round one. Gray Maynard outpointed Clay Guida on Friday night in probably the only noteworthy fight to occur at the UFC on FX4. Um, as it turned out, in the aftermath of the fight, the predominant storyline has been Guida and his, sta- his tactics during the fight. Uh, it was a split decision for Maynard. Uh, at least one judge scored it for, for Guida, but there's been a certain hullabaloo Oh yeah, to uh, real hullabaloo to go around the industry regarding, I guess what you would call Clay Guida's uh, game plan in this fight. Ben, what what is all the fuss about here? The hullabaloo, you mean? The hullabaloo. Yeah, well, you know, it was a weird fight. Let's say that. I, for, when I watched it, I remember thinking, okay, this is, you know, this is an interesting strategy by Clay Guida. Not necessarily a, a bad strategy. I just kept waiting for him to to do something else. I kept waiting for the, you know, step two of this brilliant plan of his to, to go into effect. Because if the idea was to stay away from Gray Maynard, pick him apart and, and move, uh, get him frustrated until he charged in and did something stupid to open himself up, that part worked. Gray Maynard got frustrated. Yeah, he absolutely did. Turned into a, the third Diaz brother there. Yeah, for a and he time. was like just angry, lunging, and like, you know, trying to hit him with these just lunging hooks that, where he landed right in the fence. And you thought, okay, well, if that's... That's got to be what you wanted here, right? So, and now comes the attack. You know, now now is when you spring the trap on him. Uh, but it didn't happen. That's right. the thing that I think was really the strange part about it was that it seemed as though Clay Guida intended to keep that up the entire time. It's a tough way. I mean, obviously, if you're doing that, you're planning on the fight going to decision because you, you're not really making a, a serious effort to finish the guy. It's hard to win a decision that way. I think we've seen that. You know, it's not impossible, but it is difficult to win a decision that way. So I was really expecting him to do a little something more, and he didn't. Or maybe Gray Maynard, you know, flipping him off and yelling at him convinced him to try and put a little bit of a different effort in there the last two rounds, whatever. Uh, but I didn't think it was a horrible fight. I was a little bit surprised when people were just outraged by it. Yeah, I didn't think so either. And to tell you the truth, because I was out of town this weekend, I watched it on tape delay once I got home. Uh, but then you had heard, though, I imagine. Like, no, here's the thing. Like, I, I stayed off, off Twitter. I didn't really look at M- MMA sites while I was gone. So I had... Oh, it must have been difficult for you. It was a, it was a real chore, let me tell you. Uh, I knew, I, I you know, just from the little that I had seen of the internet, I knew that there was some kind of controversy... Um, I believe you G chatted me to ask me if I'd watched the fight yet. I hadn't, I didn't know what the result was and I didn't know what the controversy was. I just had this sort of hazy feeling, the idea that something had happened that, that people didn't, didn't cotton to, so to speak. Um, and I have to say that after I watched it, had I not known that, that there was, had I not had this pre-existing idea that there was this controversy, I really wouldn't have ever guessed that there would have been that much controversy well, about I mean, you this could fight. Hear people booing, right? I mean, sure. Yeah. The yeah. Clearly the, clearly the fans were, were not too jazzed on it, but I mean, when is that not the case? It seems yeah. like live fans always do that. And you know, to be, to be honest, I thought that the truth was that Clay Guida came into the fight with a pretty good strategy. Probably, you know, one of the only strategies that he could have used to actually win the fight. I thought it was a strategy that 
emphasized his own strengths and and tried to undermine the strengths of Gray Maynard. That's the thing. I mean, uh, that I think is a good point because you ask yourself, how does Clay Guido win that fight? Right. He's not knocking out Gray Maynard. If he stands there and plants his feet and trades bombs with him, you know, that's going to be a terrible night for Clay Guida. He's not going to just straight up out wrestle the guy the way he might with some other people. So, yeah, he's got quickness and he's got cardio. Yeah. Those are the things he has to bring to bear. But, exactly. again, if you just if your strategy is that, like, you know, I'm never going to be where he thinks I'm going to be and I'm just going to, I'm going to dart in and pick him apart and kind of frustrate him that way, there has to be another element to it. There has, you know, there has to be kind of a turn there at the end where you take advantage of that frustration. Uh, no, yeah, that's the thing. I thought, you know, I didn't have a problem with Guida's strategy. I think the only problem was that he just didn't execute it properly, um, at least not properly enough for him to win the fight. I did think that it was fairly, if not close, like competitive. Yeah. I thought that the first two rounds were were pretty competitive. And then I think the real problem maybe was that, you know, Guida came out at the start of round three and got hurt really early in the round. Gray Maynard hit him with a pretty solid punch and Guida got hurt. And after that, he kind of amped up a little bit in his like histrionics, if you will. Like he, he dropped his hands and, and, you know, started dancing around the cage a little bit. And anytime you do that, I think it's going to raise, raise people's hackles, especially the hackles of the UFC president, Dana White, who I guess was not complimentary, complimentary about no, Guida. But you know, I felt like fight. Dana White was overreacting to that one when he said that he thought it was a blowout for Gray Maynard. I mean, I, I, again, I thought it was a close fight. I give rounds one and two to Guida. I give four and five to Maynard, and I think three is close. So, you know, when they announced split decision, I was not terribly surprised. You say 48-47 for Maynard. Okay, fine. I, you know, I can't be, you know, terribly upset about that one. But have Dana White go on there and say he thought it wasn't even close, that it was a blowout for Maynard. I don't see that. I don't see how you give him those first two rounds when he just couldn't find Clay Guida, and he was getting hit in the face. I mean, you look at his face afterwards. That was not a guy who... Uh, was in a, a, a track meet. You know, he was obviously getting punched. So I, maybe it seems like maybe uh, Dana White has just had, he, he's kind of had it with some of this shit at this point. Maybe because of the schedule, because of how busy he is. And, you know, of course, whenever there's a fight that's not spectacular, he hears it from a ton of people on Twitter and a ton of fans. And it seems like maybe sometimes he just, he starts out on edge and it doesn't take much to, to push him over. Uh, I didn't think it was a horrible fight. It was definitely weird and I don't want to watch it again. But at the same time, a lot of people pointed to it and said, this is what's wrong with MMA right here. Greg Jackson and his game plans, you know, Clay Guida's running around and because and, Greg Jackson told him to. Even Dana in the post-fight thing with uh, Ariel, he didn't say Greg Jackson's name, but said, hey, some goof put this in his head that it was a good, thing, good idea to run around for five rounds. And obviously he was wrong. I mean, we know who he's talking about there. That's a veiled shot, not so veiled shot at Greg. That, I think, is stupid. And I'm surprised yeah. at the kinds of people who are saying it, as if they, as if Greg Jackson didn't have another fighter on that same card who beat the shit out of Ross Pearson. Like, how does he? Ha like, you forget about that. No one gives, him, no one says, "Oh, Greg Jackson teaches his guys to go out there and finish." But when, as soon as one of the, his guys does something that somebody doesn't like, then it's all Greg Jackson's fault, and he is as part of some kind of large scale conspiracy to ruin MMA. Yeah, and that's, this, this is one of my bigger pet peeves about the industry at large. And obviously we've talked on the podcast in the past about the fact that fans are well within their rights to criticize fighters and to criticize fights that they think are boring. Even and, if it's free. And frankly to criticize the UFC because as I think you said last week, the UFC essentially is making this contract with fans that, that fans are going to give their time and sometimes their money and in exchange they're going to they're gonna watch an enjoyable product. I have no problem with that. Um you know, if a fight is boring, let's let's say that it's boring, and that I'm going to say that about a fight later in this in this episode. Ooh, that's that's a tease. That's a little yeah. teaser for the um, for the future. Now you have to stick around. But I think that there's a point where that sort that thought process becomes hysteria, and and to my mind, it becomes unseemly. Uh, there there's a point where. I feel like a entitlement starts to creep in a little bit, and it's to me it's sort of ugly because. Yes, you watch this fight, you watch these fights for entertainment, you you want to be entertained, but at what, you know, what premium does a fighter need to put on entertaining the fans? I would argue it's the, it should be his last priority, because the the fact of the matter is, it's already two grown men stripped to the waist, <laughs> fighting each other, inside, locked inside a cage for, with their bare hands, like, to, to watch that and be like, oh, that was, I was not entertained by that, is... It's a little bit unseemly. And my larger point, I think, is that I feel like the action inside the cage in an MMA fight needs to be sort of like hallowed ground. 
Because if you start manipulating that in any way, even if you start just inferring that guys should should fight in a way that that is not ad- advantageous to them, you know, you, then you start to, to blur the lines between what it is that we're actually but watching. That's if already it, happened. That's our, I mean, the UFC can do that just by hiring a certain type of fighter. No, and yeah, absolutely. Not hiring another certain type that's of fighter. That's true. And, and I mean, that's going to happen. And that's because like and on some level that has to happen because you have to respond to what the fans want, you know? Sure, I, I understand that, and but that doesn't mean that I typically or generally have to like it. Like, why did Dan Hardy get to stick around? Uh, again, as much as we like the guy, for after, after losing four, meanwhile, Jared, Gerald Harris wins a few, loses one, and he's gone. It's because they didn't like the way he fought. And so in that way, the UFC is sending these messages that are picked up loud and clear by the fighters. Right, and also by the fans, which yeah. is the part that bothers me the most, I think. Uh, I you mean, can't tell people what to like, though. No, you can't and I tell don't, them, like, you should be entertained by this. I don't want to tell them that, but I also don't want to foster this idea that there's one way to fight an MMA fight. I mean, this isn't the Michael Jackson yeah. beat it video. They're not going to tie each other's arms arms together and, and give them knives and have them fight you know it's not idea for a new sports promotion <laughs> it's not don't you, tell chad it's not boxing from the 19th century they're not going to scratch out a line in the dirt and be like these you fellas will stand here and stand toe to toe and engage like in pugilism until like, one of them falls over like you're you're doing this thing as if like fighters are some like amazonian tribe and we don't want to we don't want to contact them and corrupt their pure sensibilities uh, so we'll just like we'll leave them alone and we'll watch from afar and just see what they do. And we, that's not what happens. We're already influencing it, like the the media coverage, the way what fighters say about other fighters, who gets paid, who doesn't get paid, who gets fired, who gets kept on. All that stuff influences the way they're doing it. And so I think we're kind of kidding ourselves if we say that we're not doing that. We're totally doing that. Maybe I'm just a starry-eyed idealist, man. I don't know. I just I don't <laughs> that's like what it. I There's, see when I look at the, you. <laughs> part of it, part of, I mean that part of it just bothers me. It's always bothered me. I don't you know the thing that's great about MMA is the mixed part of it. It's yeah. mixed martial arts. It's a nuanced sport. There are a no, lot I, of different I agree options. With you, on that. you ought to be able to do whatever you think is going to be the way that, that you're going to win the fight. And yeah, and I, you know, I'm not saying that this, that the sport is like under threat of becoming fixed or anything like that. But to me, it always rankles me a little bit when we start criticizing these guys game plans for, you know, not being exciting enough or quote unquote running away. Or At the whatever. same time, you want to watch Ben Askren fight? Do you <laughs> want to sit through five rounds of that? I don't. I don't want to see it. I mean, like, I respect the guy's skills. He's really good at what he does, but what he does is just not very much fun to watch. I mean, sure. No, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, uh, but uh, honestly, I, I kind of think tough shit. Okay, like, I, 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 that guy's not fun to watch. So what? Yeah. Not all the fights are going to be great, man. Like no one, yeah, we somebody's got to do something about it. We don't. I, I get we that. don't bring the same standard to other sports. Really, no, absolutely. like nobody looks at the Bear Bryant Alabama teams and is like, God, you know they were awesome. They won so many national championships, but God, they were boring to watch. Just <laughs> shitty. Like you know, they didn't get not invited to the national championship game because their style was too boring. Yeah, or like you know the the Baltimore Ravens when they had a great defense and just an offense that whose job was to just not fuck up. Nobody. Was saying oh well who the hell wants to watch this we want to see touchdowns we want to see you know 60 yard passing plays and they're not doing it so we should do something about it. yeah you're right about that uh at the same time though i do think that if the worst that happens is that some fans complain that they didn't like the way this guy fought or the way that guy fought you know shit that kind of stuff is going to happen people love and especially even when people are saying oh greg jackson's killing the sport or this is bad for the sport or, you know People do that with every sport. People, oh, these players aren't as good as the, you know, the players in the 80s wouldn't do this kind of bullshit. They were they were team players. There wasn't a bunch of prima donnas back. I mean, people do that with, with basketball. They do it with football. They do it with everything. So I don't know if it's really that unique to MMA. Sure, yeah. And, and like I said at the top of this discussion, I don't want to, you know, I, I think that fans and us, frankly, we're well within our rights to criticize fighters and fights. I just don't like it when it gets to the point of, so-and-so is going to kill the sport because that's just ridiculous. Like Greg Jackson is trying to help his fighters win fights and he's doing a pretty goddamn good job at it. Not to mention, once you start to name off some of Greg Jackson's guys, the Greg Jackson is killing MMA hypothesis becomes entirely unsupportable. Because when like John Jones goes out there and beats somebody's ass, people say it's because John Jones is just a fantastic, phenomenal fighter, which he is also a Greg Jackson's fighter or when Donald Cerrone who we talked about you know goes out there and just walks people down and demolishes them and people say oh Donald Cerrone is just a badass that's also true also a Greg Jackson's fighter I mean there's there's tons of that kind of stuff he has so many damn fighters 
sometimes the fights they put on are going to be kind of shitty. That's just, that has to be how it is. Well, we've gone on long enough, Damn I it. think. Uh, <laughs> I think to recap, I'm for a true and unadulterated sport. <laughs> You're for fixed fights. Is that, is that pretty accurate? Well, all I'm saying is, look, let's, let's get some hyenas in there, or maybe a couple lions on a chain, and let's just see what happens. Anderson Silva against 50 ninjas. Who wins? How big is the cage? <laughs> anyway, uh, it, before we move on to round two, it's time for everyone's favorite feature Recurring feature on the co-main event podcast. The world's leading theatricalist is set to join us. <laughs> Coming up next, we're bringing in Sir Nigel Longstock for another episode of Master Tweet Theater. And now, Master Tweet Theater. That's right. Back again friend of the podcast, noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock, for everyone's favorite segment, Master Tweet Theater. Sir Nigel, how you doing? Good day to you, sir. And, and good day to you as well. Before we get started, I wanted to address something that's kind of been swirling around the old internets. There's a bit of a stir online on the Twitter, if you will. Some people are questioning your knighthood. Ha! The rapscallions. I assure you, sir, my knighthood is in fine working order. I, you know, I, I felt certain that you would say that. However, there has been some controversy over your refusal to produce the long-form knighthood certificate. I will not dignify these questions with a response, sir. So, what you're saying is that you're a knight and you absolutely refuse to prove it. Yes, sir. I'm the first of my line, and if you're not careful, I will be the first to yours. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we've gotten through the obligatory part of the podcast where Sir Nigel threatens me, so I guess we'll move straight into the tweets. As always, the way this works, Sir Nigel will read us five tweets, one by one. Chad and I will try and guess who the tweeter in question is. Someone from the MMA community, not necessarily a fighter, although often a fighter, uh, and uh, probably we'll get a bunch of them wrong, and Sir Nigel will mock us. So Nigel, take it away. What's the first one? <clears throat> yes, let us begin. <laughs> Red leather, yellow leather. Red I think leather, you're warmed up. I toy think boat. <laughs> toy boat, sir. <clears throat> Number one. You don't bring your work laptop to Starbucks on Sunday morning for the same reason you don't bring a hooker to a Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, 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 oh. Because it would upset my mother? Yes, of course. That's, that's why I don't bring my work laptop to Starbucks? Your mother only has so many trips to Starbucks left in her. <laughs> Chad, do you, do you want to take a stab at this one? Uh, well, the inclusion of Starbucks is interesting. It, it leads me down a certain path. Uh-huh. But uh, I'm going to go with a curve and not guess the poet Philip Baroni, but instead guess last week's Starbucks tweeter, See her, Baher Derzada. Ah, uh, yes. Well, okay. I see what you're doing there. You're you've got you're onto something with the Starbucks thing. He he did mention Starbucks. However, you know, last week, I I felt like going with the poet Philip Baroni at a certain point, and I didn't do it, and I hated myself. I'm gonna say this one because it mentions a hooker, po- poet Philip Baroni. It has that timeless ring, sir, but it is not Damn the poet it. Philip Baroni. It is, in fact, C.R. Bahadurzada. Is it really? Yes. Oh, wow, your, your Starbucks guess is actually, you know, that maybe that, this is calling card. Well, so far, two tweets from Bahadurzada and two tweets about Starbucks. So file that away for future reference. <laughs> yeah, I'll, no, I will forget it immediately after this is over. All right. Tweet number two. <clears throat> I will project for this one. Fuck Sports Authority and the faulty bikes they sell. Handle bar off, twice left, pedal off, four times, flat tire, seat off, once three month old. Wow, that's incredible. Breath control, sir. Yeah, no, now I see I see now why you had the role of Bullwinkle J. Moose in that uh, that child's theater production you were telling us about. The whole show is him yelling obscenities. <laughs> well, that explains why the authorities won't let you do it anymore. But that one, I mean, can we ask how many capital letters are in that one? Yes, all of the capital letters oh. are in that one. A through Z. It's like the quick brown fox jump. <laughs> exactly the same. Okay. Well, normally all capital letters would mean Pat Barry. Just that's a given. However, I don't think Pat Barry would buy a bike from the sports authority, which seems like a terrible idea. You know who I see doing that? 
the poet Philip Baroni. Wow. Okay, that's that's two in a row for you. I'm right? not. I'm not going to be made to look a fool on this one. We'll I'm just see, not. We'll see about that. Uh, okay, somebody that would ride a bike. So I'm going to guess that they live in a commuter culture. I am going to guess. I don't know if this person is even on Twitter, but I find it humorous to imagine him riding a bike. I'm going to guess noted MMA trainer Ray Longo. Oh, that would be hilarious if Ray Longo's riding around Long Island on a bike. Yeah, noted commuter community, by the way. It is, in fact, not Ray Longo. It is Pat Barry. Oh, oh he wow. He would buy a bike. right there on the tip of your tongue. Yeah. Well, now I do feel a fool. He will okay. never buy a second bike at Sports Authority. <laughs> well, I guess everyone's going to learn that lesson. Uh-huh. Tweet number three. A wombat is like a furry little pig with sharp claws. <laughs> Wait, oh. are we sure this is from someone in the MMA community and not someone in the zoological community? Possibly a child in the zoological community. <laughs> is a wombat like a pig with sharp claws? You got me. I don't know. Um, you know what? That's, that one is just weird enough. I'm going to say, Poet Philip Baroni! Okay, I see your strategy now. That's I right. S- I see what's up. Um, I'm going to go with noted animal lover and friend of the podcast, Danny Boy Downs. Huh. It is true that Danny Boy Downs does love animals and almost all children, but this quote originates from Matt Lindland. Oh. Matt what? Lindland. What the fuck? Was Lindland at a zoo or something? Portland Zoo? Portland Zoo does not have a wombat. Portland Zoo is the saddest fucking zoo in the world. You don't think he went to the Gresham Zoo or the, <laughs> the Westland Zoo and saw the wombat? The, I don't know. The Gresham Zoo is some dude's backyard who has a bunch of dogs. True, true. All right, moving on. <clears throat> Tweet number four. With this Florida flooding coverage, they are showing people that needed to be rescued. Shocked to see they were all obese. Darwinism equals let em die. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> That's dark. Wait. <laughs> So, did this tweeter in question expect that Florida flood coverage would show people who did not need to be rescued? He also expected that we would take the number two for the letter T-O. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, okay, someone got some time on their hands, sitting around, watching flood coverage on the news. Not something a busy, I'm going to say gainfully employed person does. Uh, and... Uses this as an opportunity to rail against obese people. Gotta be poet Philip Brony. Gotta be. This is just turning into a farce. Uh, <laughs> I am going to go with Fox broadcaster and noted physical culturalist uh, Jay Glazer. Huh. I'm sorry. It is neither the poet Philip Brony nor physical culturalist Jay Glazer. It is Matt Mitrione. Oh, oh you love guessing Matt Mitrione. The one time I it. don't guess Mitrione. He detests fat people, which I'm sure will continue all through his life when he <laughs> remains slim and trim. UFC heavyweight Matt Mitrione. <laughs> all right. I guess we're down to, to one left. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Aldous Huxley was a genius. Whoa. What? Wow. That's it? Period. This is from someone in the MMA community. You were sure about that. It is, in fact, a member of the MMA community and noted genius aficionado. Chad, you want to go first? I am stumped. Someone knows who Aldous Huxley is? Uh, I guess I will guess quasi-smart person. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Ronda Rousey, why not? Huh. Well, Aldous Huxley, for those of you who don't know, author of Brave New World, uh, I'm going to say you want to believe that this is a British person and somebody who's literate. All Britons are literate, sir. (laughs) At the same time, I've guessed poet Philip Roney four times. If somehow this turns out to be him, and I don't guess it, I, I will commit suicide immediately after this podcast. And I don't want to do that. I got a lot of living left to do. So, damn it, I'm all in. Poet Philip Brony. Come on, poet. No, sir, you God are damn it. wrong. It is somehow not Joe Rogan and is in fact Dan Hardy. Wow. Wait a minute, Quiet. Sir Nigel. Are you telling me that you came up in here with these tweets and 
There's not a single poet Philip Baroni tweet in the bunch. Not even one. You son of a bitch. You did this to make a fool of me, didn't you? The poet Philip Baroni's words echo through the ages, and all you need to do is plug your ears and listen. <laughs> like a seashell. I'll never forgive you for this, Nigel. That's right, Nigel. Sir. <laughs> wow, well, I got one, and you did you get zero? Shut up. Okay. Anyway, uh, that'll do it for Master Tweet Theater this week. Thanks, as always, to Sir Nigel Longstock uh, for showing his face and reading the tweets. Um, once again, I reign victorious. Uh, I think I've, I've won every week, frankly. Or yeah. Actually, we actually we tie most weeks. I think. Well, let's let's see what that'll get you. All right. Anyway, coming up after this short break, round number two. <laughs> Following a first-round knockout victory over MMA luminary, or let's say one-time luminary Pedro Hizo, Fedor Emelianenko, the great Fedor, the, the menace of the Pride Fighting Championships, retired with nearly 40 fights to his credit, and the debate about just how great Fedor was continues on. Chad, Fedor... Greatest heavyweight, greatest fighter, pudgy chump, Russian dude who really spoke English and just was fucking with us all these years. What do you say? Greatest heavyweight, I would say at this point, um, okay. and in the I would say in the discussion for still in the discussion for greatest fighter. I, I, I we talked about this before. Anderson Silva's probably number one. Yeah, at I agree. this point, uh, yeah, Fedor could be number two. Could be number two or number three. He's definitely in the in the discussion, and I think it only speaks to the great heights that he reached during that ridiculous run that he had through pride. And, and then, you know, through the first part of what I guess you would call his indie career after the fall of pride. <laughs> That's what you call it. Huh? I, I guess. I don't know what else you would call it besides increasingly awkward pit stops at one <laughs> flailing promotion after another. Um, you know, he, he created this sort of unbelievable mystique. He reached these, these, huge heights in the sport. And I think it only speaks to how dominant he was that we now look upon him with such scorn just because he lost three fights in a row like that, that a lot of people, you know, especially if they work for a certain America based MMA promotion, (laughs) will tell you that that like undid his whole legacy, that he was overrated from the start, that they didn't want him in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's just that he lost three fights. I think, I think Fedor was a victim of mismanagement in so many ways. And one of the ways was that, his the, the M1 Global people created this perception that they were wanted to ride the Fedor money train as long as they could, and they didn't want to take a chance on putting him in any tough fights. Even when like even when there were tough fights to be had, like uh, when Overeem was calling him out there for a long time, and instead, no, we went for Brice Overdoom because uh, they thought that would be an easier fight, and it went against him. I think that was what hurt his leg. And then you know he goes and he loses two more right after that, include you know one to Antonio Silva, where you could say, oh well, you know being a smaller heavyweight caught up with him, and then one to Dan Henderson, you know, a light heavyweight and sometimes middleweight, and that one where you just kind of got to say, okay, maybe he, he was not, or maybe he, at least at this point, was not as great as we thought he was. Uh, could be just age, and, you know, guys just kind of fall off and they get older, that happens. But sure, yeah. I think that the dual legacy of Fedor is that he was great in pride. He was one of the guys who dominated by being able to do everything really well at a time when very few people could do that. You know, kind of helped usher in that new age. Uh, but also, I think that we will remember him as being, you know, mismanaged. That what could he have done? And people will say, oh, what, just because he didn't fight in the UFC, what you think he, that, that means he sucks? I don't think it means he sucks. But I think let's not kid ourselves. The UFC is and has been the number one MMA promotion in the world for a while now. If you never tested yourself against the guys that, and especially when the UFC's heavyweight division was becoming better and better, if you never tested yourself against those guys, then how do we know? You know, we don't. And so, and it didn't help his case when right around that same time is when he started to lose to guys like Antonio Silva, who then turns around and, you know, gets his ass beat by a couple other smaller-ish heavyweights like Daniel Cormier and Cain Velasquez. Yeah, I think it, it goes without saying. I mean, it's, it's, it's without question, the, the biggest failing of his career was just a miserable choice of, of management. And 
who knows? Maybe, I don't even know how, what kind of a choice it was. I think it was just a kind of thing where, like, these were the guys that brought him to the dance, or these were the first guys who approached him when he was 25 years old. And, and these were the guys that had his family school. hostage yeah. in, a, in a safe house in Starry Oscar somewhere. Exactly. And I think that that, I think you're right. That's the biggest failing of his career is that we will, we will never know how he would have fared against the top stars of this new generation. Fedor dominated. Uh, the Pride era, which, which you know, that sort of straddled like the old school Valet right. Tudo days. But it was days. the best at the time, especially for heavyweights. Sure. That was the yeah. best at the time. Yeah. And then if that wasn't enough, then after the Pride era was done, he came over and beat the hell out of the two guys who had been alternatingly as the best, the two best heavyweights in the UFC. So he definitely beat the best of his time. And sure. he, this leads me to something I, I wanted to bring up. A, a reader comment on MMAfighting.com. One of the few times where I've read a reader comment and thought, oh, that's a really interesting issue that this guy brings up. Uh, his name, let's see, I have it here, uh, Steve J, at Steve least. Steve J, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, you know Steve J. Uh, Steve J puts forth the hypothesis, uh, quote, it's such a new sport, meaning MMA, that the best current fighter will be the GOAT greatest of all time for a while to come. In other words, MMA is advancing so rapidly and has been around for such a, a short time that whoever's the best right now is the best ever. Because... In other eras, you know, like you said, they just weren't as good as and didn't have the training techniques and there wasn't the depth of, of competition. So Junior Dos Santos would beat all the previous heavyweights, basically. What do sure. you think of that? I think that that's probably true. I mean, in a way, when we start talking about the history of MMA, it's comical because the history of MMA only goes, or MMA in America at least, goes back to, you know, 1993 and organized MMA, not that, not that much previous to that. Uh, and you're right. I mean, the sport is involved in such a rapid evolution. We're still, you know, just like a generation and a half into, into fighters, into, into, you know, the evolution of the sport. It's evolved so rapidly that, you know, if you took John Jones and put him in, uh, pride four or whatever, he'd probably smoke everybody, Yeah, uh, you know? And, and so it, you have to, even as short as the history is, you have to put these guys like Fedor in their perspective in, in probably the same way that if you, plucked Babe Ruth out of the 20s. Okay, that, that was going to be it, my and, next and, point. Is, and threw him into a major league lineup today, you know, where there are, heaven forbid, Latin players and, and you know, <laughs> African-American players. He, you know, he, he might not be the best. He might not even be that good. That, well, that was the point that I was wondering is what sport couldn't you say that about? I mean, I guess you could say, like, Michael Jordan, if he were in his prime, still probably do pretty well yeah. in the NBA. Uh, you could say that about a handful of guys, but... I don't know how much of it is just a perception or that, you know, maybe some of these guys that you can rise to the, the level of the competition to some extent, uh, but, you know, technology and training techniques and are just are in improving knowledge of the human body and the way uh, our philosophies and strategies of any given sport and evolve drugs. over time. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't have drugs back when Michael Jordan was playing. Hey, yeah. not according to baseball. According <laughs> to baseball, drugs just showed up on the scene in 2001. They were around for like three or four years. And they stamped and then, it out quick. And they stomped it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it, like, Pete Rose, come on, Pete sure. Rose, if Pete Rose were, you know, 28 years old and playing baseball today, I got to think he'd do pretty well. Yeah, and baseball is probably, you know, baseball is more of a skill game than it is like an, an athleticism game. One need only look at the likes of David Ortiz and Pablo Sandoval to know that you don't have to be in the greatest shape to go out and, and, and you know, play play baseball at a high level. But MMA is kind of the, the exact opposite of that. Like MMA is pretty much the most athletically based sport you, you can get. I, I, and for that reason, I think... That that's why the evolution has been so rapid because we've we reached this point where you know guys had had most everybody had rounded at their skills right we've reached this point where you have to be at, to fight in the UFC at a high level you have to be good at everything so now it is, it's more athletically based than it than it was in its and there recent were better history. athletes getting into it because the money's better sure than it now. yeah so like a guy like Fedor because he was good at both grappling and striking you know he could feast on these guys that were essentially one skill athletes who were who are just bluffing it at everything else. Now, you know... How you, dare you talk about Hong Man Choi that way? <laughs> yeah, Hong, Hong Man Choi bluffing it at Show everything. Some respect. Right? Except being real tall. No, he was legit on that. <laughs> um, I don't recall what the what the initial question was. Uh, it was, do I think that the fighters of today are the greatest fighters of all time? Pro yeah, the, probably, the fighters yeah, are the best yeah. at, at any current but time. But I, I mean, I think you have ever. to make adjustments just in the way that they kind of do in the NFL. I mean, Jim Brown was a bad motherfucker. I don't know how good he would be if he if you dropped him into the NFL today. 
uh, he probably wouldn't be as fast as Chris Johnson or Jim as, Brown were here right now. He'd slap you in the mouth. I know. I'm so glad that he's not, he's not here. Uh, anyway, It'd be a different kind of podcast if Jim Brown sat in uh, the unanswerable question, I suppose is how would Fedor's career be different and be differently remembered if when pride fell in, in 2007, if he had immediately come to the UFC. Yeah. And if he'd immediately come to the UFC and even just won a couple fights, you know, yeah. uh, I think that that, that would make a huge, but again, I agree that he deserve right now. He deserves to be thought of as the best heavyweight of all time, and especially I think though that when MMA progresses and has a few different decades to its name, I think you know we'll still think of him as the greatest of his era. The way you'd think of like, well, Jack Dempsey was the greatest heavyweight of his era, uh, but of course you know would get murdered by the guys forty years later, who would then get murdered by the guys. 15 years later. I mean, I think that that's fine. That doesn't diminish what the guy accomplished in his own time and against who he had to go against. I mean, I think we'll, we'll, we will remember Fedor as being a great fighter. Uh, I just think that he is one of those few fighters, though, who invokes or incites this kind of uh, just rabid, cultish following, uh, which well, is yeah, foolish. I mean, rabid- and that, I think, hurts his legacy, if anything, because people look at these people who think that, you know, Fedor is basically a demigod, and those people are idiots. And, yeah, but uh, that's a little uh, sad. Fair point, but rapid responses on both—you know—rapid responses on both sides of the equation. Like there are people that will tell you that Fedor is God, and then there are people who will tell you that Fedor was never good. Yeah, like and the the people who are will tell you that Fedor was never good apply this kind of criticism to Fedor because of those three losses that they you know usually don't apply to a guy like Chuck Liddell who went yeah, one and five absolutely. for the last that's, three years of his career that's a, a very valid so point. like if yeah. if Fedor was never good what can be said of a guy like Chuck Liddell or Tito Ortiz who who you know had similar experiences or Randy Couture with, got knocked out by Brock Lesnar I mean like you you could do that to anybody anyway uh Fedor Emelianenko we wish you well godspeed my friend have fun playing with those beautiful blonde children. Also, though, Fedor as a person seems like a really nice and reasonable guy. Yeah. It's his management that, that seems like they're a bunch of shady assholes uh, who have probably had a bunch of people murdered. Uh, Fedor, when he says, I want to go spend more time with my, my kids and my wife, you actually believe him, yeah. you know, and, which is kind times. of rare. Yeah. One of the few yeah. times you believe an athlete when he says he wants to spend more time with his yeah. family. Yeah, politician says that. It means, like, you know, I got caught banging my mistress. Like, you know, Fedor says it, you actually believe it. So, you know, good for him. We wish him well as he cruises into the mixed martial arts sunset. Before we segue into round three, it's time for uh, uh, the, I would say everyone's favorite, but I said that about Master Tweet Theater. Yeah, they can't all be everyone's favorite. And this one, honestly, let's just, let's just tell like it is. It's not anyone's favorite. Making its second appearance, its return engagement on the co-main event podcast. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Okay, now for this edition of Are You Fucking Kidding Me, I'm going to point out one FC over the weekend where obviously, okay, we know the rules. They allow soccer kicks. They go a little old school with that guy. You can kick the head of a downed opponent. However, Roger Huerta, clearly done, thrown on the ground, not even really fighting back anymore. His opponent realizes that he's not even really fighting back anymore. Has like a hand just kind of gently resting between his shoulder blades. Looks up to the referee as if to say, bro, you see this? You sure? You sure you want me to do this? The referee, you know, stands stands mute. So, soccer kick right to Roger Huerta's face completely unnecessarily after the fight should have been clearly stopped and then reluctantly is stopped only after that bit of needless brutality. 1FC, you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Anyway, uh, that's that, and we are going to now segue seamlessly into round number three. In the main event of Saturday night's UFC 147 from Brazil, Rich Franklin uh, cemented his position as the UFC's 190-pound champion by defeating (laughs) Vanderlei Silva uh, in a fight steeped in meaning and tradition. All right, stop Uh, it. Just stop it right there. I see what you're doing. I I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, we know. We all know what the deal is here. It was a pretty meaningless, just for the hell of it kind of fight. It would have been that way even if it was Vanderlei Silva and Vitor. It became more so when Vitor got hurt and Rich Franklin had to fill in. Well, let's be honest. It became more so when they decided to have it in a non-weight class. Well, they decided to have it in a non-weight class because they had to get Rich to fill in, and he didn't think he could get down to 185 in time. However, 
Still, you know, not terribly meaningful. Nothing has really changed as a result. You know, Rich Franklin, his career still mostly the same. Vanley Silva, if anything, you know, he proved that he's not made of glass. So, you know, that's good. Uh, Is that what he proved? Well, I mean, he got hit some. and I, Although still, I will admit, you watch Vanley Silva getting punched these days. And part of you is like, oh, no, no, don't do that. No, he's, he's, he's fragile. See, he's I would, fragile. Don't do that to him. I would, argue, I would argue that what was proved was that the axe murderer can only show his face for two minutes of a 25-minute fight. <laughs> he almost had it there. He almost Look, but here's the thing. Better fight than I expected. Boo, better no. performance than I expected from no. Vanderlei. It was a fun fight. It didn't mean shit, but it was a fun fight. By better performance by Vanderlei than you expected, you mean that he didn't get knocked out yes, in the first that's exactly 35 what, seconds? Well, I, he didn't get knocked out at all, Chad. So, yes, <laughs> no, better than I expected I from... He point. almost put Rich Franklin away. Uh, not a super easy thing to do. Good good performance from both guys. They they showed a little, gave us a little entertainment value, and honestly, I wasn't expecting much, so I was pleasantly surprised. You can't be serious. I am totally serious. Are you, you going to tell me you were not entertained? This fight fucking sucked. Get the fuck out of here. This fight was two 60-year-old duffers <laughs> ham and egging their way around the municipal golf course, and <laughs> wow. five twosomes backed up behind them trying to play through... And but they can't because these guys are out there for their. They, I paid for twenty five minutes. I'm gonna get my twenty five minutes in. <laughs> I can't believe you're being this much of an asshole about this. As fight. I alluded to before, twenty five minutes. I'll give you this. Two minutes of it was exciting. Wow, man! During this fight, Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg were having complete discussions, conversations <laughs> about topics that did not relate to the fight at length because it was like Rich Franklin and Vanderlei Silva were fighting. At half speed. You're the same son of a bitch who earlier on this very same episode of the CME, if you nasty, were complaining about fans bitching no. about boring fights. No, that is a misrepresentation of my argument. Yes, said, of course. I'm doing It's for a rhetorical purpose. I said on numerous occasions that fans are totally within their rights to say that fights are boring and to criticize fighters because of it. Perhaps I said that for a reason. <laughs> Perhaps I said that because I knew when round three rolled around, I was going to say that Rich Franklin versus Vanderlei Silva 2 fucking sucked because it did. I don't see how you say that fucking sucked. I mean, it had action pretty much throughout the entire thing. It had no action. It had two minutes of action where Rich Franklin got saved by the bell in the second round. And then at the tail end of round five, Vanderlei Silva holds Vanderle himself up at the, at the end. And yeah, comes after him? The, the actual axe murderer showed himself for the final minute of this fight. It's, I mean, but the rest of what it. What the fuck do you want from those two guys? What do you want from them? I want them to not look like two Tim Sylvia's fighting each other. That wow. step, step, jab, step, step, jab, body kick. Like that's all it was, the whole thing. Tim Sylvia's not kicking anybody in the body. No, that's true. That was Rich Franklin. But it was pretty much step-step jab for the whole fight. You know, I don't know, I don't know what the hell you expected of those two guys. I thought they it's looked... It's not what I expect. It's whether or not they had a good fight. They didn't. They had a shitty fight. I would say this. Here's, here's a statement for you. Of the two shitty main events from this weekend, Rich Franklin versus Vanderlei Silva was Far shittier than Clay Guida versus Gray Man. Uh, you're just a, and it's not even close. You're just a grumpy asshole at this point. Okay, if these are all shitty fights, tell me the last fight that you thought was a good fight. Oh, I thought Verdum against Mike Russo was a good fight. Good that fight was guy. entertaining. Well, it's because Verdum just jumping up and down on a guy's head, basically. Well, there was a stoppage. It was action packed. And I, like I said before, I didn't think that Guida versus Maynard was that bad, considering the uproar over it. Thought that was a good fight. If you, if right now you were like, "Hey, we're gonna go downstairs to my basement and watch one of the two UFC main events from this weekend," which one do you want to watch? I would watch Guido Maynard. Rather you would than not. Watch Rich you Franklin would not. Vanderlei Silva walk well, around the cage and poke each other with jabs for twenty three minutes. Now, now you have discredited yourself. <laughs> I'm afraid. Oh man, that's in I'm, front of I'm, all these people. I'm completely serious. Anyway, oh, here's here's a question that I wanted to ask. By one of the weird coincidences that we sometimes get in sports, the two biggest stars of Pride, Fedor Emelianenko and Vanderlei Silva, both essentially ended their relevant careers this week. <laughs> 
I think Vanderlei Silva would disagree, but go on. As you look back on their careers, do you think, which do you think was better off? Who made the right choice? Fedor obviously never came to the UFC, which we talked about in round two. Vanderlei pretty much went straight to the UFC, fought, made his return to the UFC, I think like nine or ten months after Pride fell. Uh, went, I believe, three and five in eight appearances in the octagon. Every, I mean, every single one of them besides one was a main event. Uh, the guy became obviously a much bigger star, probably made a, a boatload of money, but at the same time, you know, didn't didn't necessarily fare too well competition-wise. Who do you think made the right choice? Whose legacy will suffer the least for what has become of them during the, the twilight of their careers? Well, it depends what you m- think of as the better decision. I'm asking you what you think. Well, but here's the thing. In the sense that becoming a pro fighter is already a terrible decision, I think, uh, for your health. Wow, who's, and, who's cynical now? And general well-being. I mean, come on. It's a, this is a, a sport where you sacrifice your, your health and your body and a lot of the best, most vibrant years of your life spent you know, cutting weight and being miserable in training camp. You miss a lot. You sacrifice a lot. Not a way I would ever want to live, uh, nor could I live. So in that sense, Fedor made the better choice because Vanderlei suffered a lot more. Uh, and probably for less cash if you total it all up. However, Fedor had a different... He had that you know unbeaten mystique kind of thing that suffered from them trying to protect it too much. Vanderlei didn't really have that when he came over to the UFC. He'd already been beaten some. You know, He got knocked out by Dan Henderson. He got head kicked by Crow Cop. So he didn't really have that to lose. Vanderlei's career in the UFC, if nothing else, proves his bona fides as the badass, willing to fight anybody, willing to charge in there and get punched in his dome over and over again, if that's what it takes. Always willing to put on a show uh, that just crazed madman buzzsaw Vanderlei Silva. And he, he showed that. In the UFC, he showed it now. He continues to show it even when his best years are behind him, even when he has to have knee surgery and facelifts and all kinds of other bullshit just to you know, patch him all up into one piece. You know, you cannot question that man's desire to fight, that man's heart. He is a crazy badass. I mean, I don't think that's the best thing to be in life. I think that, you know, you're going to suffer when you do that. But you, no one questions Vanderlei Silva the way that they do question Fedor, even though we all acknowledge that he's great. But Fedor would be in the top two or three of best fighters of all time. But Vanderlei was not going to be that way anyway. He even when you know when Pride fell apart, he was already not going to be that. Well, where, where would you put Vanderlei on a list? I guess it's hard to even quantify Vanderlei because he fought most of his career at at you know the Pride middleweight division, which was two hundred five, yeah, and then yeah. it goes down to twenty eight. Yeah, I mean it's it's tough to say. I mean he spent a good a fair number of years as the number one ranked. 205 pound fighter in the world when he was just dominating yeah. everyone over in pride. I don't know where I would, where, I mean, the, the, any discussion of greatest light heavyweight of all time becomes fraught with inconsistency and, and, uh, and, uh, mind puzzles, if you will. But I don't know where oh, I had a mind puzzle. I, well, yeah, because two of your top three guy, or, you know, you, you could argue your top three guys should be Liddell, Couture, maybe Rampage, but, you know, when you start thinking about those guys, Chuck Liddell beat Randy Couture twice. Rampage beat Chuck Liddell twice. I don't know even know how where you would put him on a list. I would say Couture would be number one, but that you know logically, I don't know how you justify that when with his two losses to. You're to a Chuck. Couture homer. That's what you are. Oh, that's we a fact. all know that. Yeah, but I mean, I think Vanderlei's legacy is not so much that he won them all or that he was he was the best. Uh, Vanderlei's legacy is the the crazed madman who who would employ that style even when it was a bad idea. Uh, that's what he did against uh, Rampage in their last fight. Nothing was happening. Vanderlei said "fuck this" and charged in there with a hook and got himself knocked out. That's what Vanderlei can be depended on to do, pretty much. You know, he's he's farting up a little bit. Well, I mean, he, he's. I think in the last couple of fights, shown that he can be a little bit more defensive and a little bit more tactical. Well, yeah, because he can't fight that way anymore, else he gets knocked out. No one can fight that way for very long. I mean, he's paid that price, and I think that he gets the appropriate amount of respect for being willing to pay that price for as long as he has. Uh, I don't think his legacy is ever going to be that you know he was necessarily the best, that he would beat everybody else, uh, but that if you're going to fight Vanderlei Silva, you're going to know you're in a fight. Anyway, that almost does it for us this week on the Co-Man Event Podcast, but we would be remiss if we didn't wrap things up with just saying stuff. Uh, the point of the show where Ben and I both make statements that we are then not allowed or not required to 
uh, support or justify in any way because at the end of the day, we are just saying stuff. Ben, did you bring it just saying stuff this week? I did. I did. Hold on. Let me get it out. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I'm just saying if these tough Brazil dudes are going to cry at the drop of a hat, what are they going to do if they win an actual meaningful fight? I'm just saying. Wow. Just saying. Okay. All right. Uh, my just saying stuff goes out to uh, budding MMA writers all over the world. And that is when you write a sentence. Here we go. That the subject of your sentence is the proper name of an organization like the UFC, Strike Force, or Pride Fighting Championships. That organization is an it, not a they. <laughs> just saying. So that's some free advice for everyone out there. And that's going to do it for this week. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from MMAfighting.com. This has been the co-main event podcast. Next week, we'll be back. We'll be talking about uh, those next two events that are coming up. UFC 148 and... Strike Force. Strike Force. Is that with the back-to-back events? for the, There's one on July 7th, one on July 11th, I think. Yes. Well, okay. Well, Strike Force is a week after that. It doesn't... We'll talk about We will shit. figure out what events yeah. are coming up, and we will preview them in or depth something. and cogently or something on next week's show. Thanks for listening. That's all for us this week. You know, right now, you're going to have to go down to my basement. I'm going to sit down and make sure you're watching. I'm going to make sure you're watching. I'm going to stare at you while you're watching. Make sure you don't look away. I would rather watch that.